0: So welcome to Great Minds, and today we correct a long-overdue miss in the Great Minds canon. And that is our conversation with my dear friend. And in this case, it's really, I guess it's always sincere. You never want to be insincere insincere when you're saying dear friend. But David Shing, known and beloved as Shingy around the world, has become a real friend. And I think that's one of the great joys of, uh, of my uh, business life and my life in general is becoming
1: friends with you, pal. Oh, mate, thank you very much indeed for that. And also... It is genuine, and it is for real, and that's why you've been blowing me off for so long, because we're dear friends, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll get you on the show at some point in time. I'm like, bullshit. You
0: um, know, it's a little embarrassing. I think we're uh, getting close to 150 <laughs> episodes.
1: <laughs> it took 150 <laughs> I mean, episodes it, for me to come on this thing? You ran out of people, <laughs> oh, and I'm your gap fill for today. A, that's how that works Scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel here. All right,
0: so you walked in, and you told me, oh, very matter-of-factly, oh, I just got uh, back from Dubai last night. Yeah talk about what it must be like to be back traveling mm. what brought you over there yeah. um but that sensation which is a relatively new one we've all been sort of grounded Whew. for about two years
1: yeah yeah uh, great question so it's when you talk about being grounded and what it's like it was completely foreign i mean i'm typically the guy that runs onto the plane last person on you know like the old days before nine eleven when you could sort of you know, step your foot in the door before it gets slammed closed or refuse to get on a plane because I left my jacket at the, uh, at the you know, the conveyor belt of x-rays. But this time, man, I got to the airport super early to find out that I needed a PCR negative test to board to check in. And I was in Chicago, bizarrely, and I was speaking somewhere else there. And I, I they have a system there. So I was able to expedite a, a C, you know, a, a PCR test in, Forty-five minutes, and have it emailed to me as I'm standing at the check-in counter. And I thought, this is not a great way to start this trip. Thank goodness I had no bags to check in, but it was strange, frankly. But airlines make you feel super safe. I got to Dubai; they do another PCR test as you enter the country. There's probably twenty booths there open, and I landed super early in the evening. Sorry, in the in the in the morning, it was like one a.m. or something, and it was busy. And so I got to go to speak at this conference. I spoke there in 2019, just as I had left Verizon. And, you know, I said to them when they asked me to speak, I said, why are you asking me to speak? I'm an HR nightmare. I'm not the sort of person you should be having keynote this this conference for you. And they said, no, the reason we want you is because you have such a wide view in the world. And it's so differentiated that people in HR would find it completely fascinating. I said, it sounds like an interesting social experiment. Let's give it a crack. And the result was really good, surprisingly, because I couldn't really read people's body language in that part of the world. They're quite guarded by appearance and obviously by outlook in some respects. But after I spoke, coming off stage, boy, it was like a lamp, you know, it was like bees to honey. And what I mean by that is they, just, they were just gagging for ideas. And I loved it. The outlook was really impressive. So I ticked that off the list. They asked me to come speak in two of their countries in 2020. Of course, that went pear-shaped. But then they asked me back for their in-person. They were only doing in-person, they weren't streaming it. And this was the first conference they've done. And so landing there, I didn't quite know what to expect, but the audience was completely receptive. And I had reframed, last time I spoke to them, I said, you're not in the human resources business, you're in the human relationship business. You guys need to feel real because you're the part of the business that people hate. And no disrespect to that, it's very lonely and I get it because people, you're either onboarding people in that joyous moment or you're exiting people in that terrible moment and it's not a great job. And it's typically not your decision who comes in and comes out, you're the facilitation group. And you need to change that, you need to have relationships. But I landed and reframed that again and I called you the, uh, instead of human relations, I said you're the harsh reality group. And what I mean by harsh reality is the last 18 months, two years, we've completely changed. And people are in, this constant state of fuzzy so your job is to help them defuzz that and understand what that means I mean mental health people talk about the subject of mental health online is up like 30% so we're comfortable with talking about the the epidemic inside the pandemic which is this mental health I just call it a constant state of fuzzy and you are the ones that have to facilitate that you play counsellor and you play career facilitator and it's new to you so you're going through this thing at the same time as they're going through this thing. So the harsh reality is that you are the epicenter of an organization now. And one of the pieces of advice I gave people was very simple, which is management probably don't want to hear this, but you need to go on a feedback loop tour of what are the things that have changed within the pandemic in your habits day to day that you should be that you think should be changing the way that people work? And how will that better the business? So are people able to craft their job differently? as well as their time shift and as well as their location shift, they're obvious, but can they craft their business differently? I remember having a discussion with Gary Vaynerchuk and I had an argument at Advertising Week one time with Bon & Bo in the middle of it uh, because he was, he was on the, the, the voice of the entrepreneur and I was on the voice of the intrapreneur, which is Gary, I've made a successful career by doing this inside a business. And the biggest challenge with doing that is you need to have a key stakeholders. You need somebody to facilitate that change that you can actually rock which as an entrepreneur you have the ability to do that because it's your investment and you know I talked a little bit about that while I was in Dubai which is I think the 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 opportunity now for people to think inside the business like an entrepreneur is much wider than just somebody's job title which is what I had and so it was a really kind of fascinating discussion on you know in your career transition as particularly in the in the HR division it's not just to help facilitate people in terms of comfort but let them be lateral in the way that they can grow. And I'm, I'm also very concerned, primarily, Matt, with these new young managers that come into organizations. I'm not so concerned about senior management. Why? Because they're on a trajectory and they know what they're up to. But these young kids that come into these organizations don't really have, one, they don't have great feedback. So I've been big on giving people tons of feedback, which is a weird thing for a creative dude to talk about. But here's where it's challenging. If I go and speak to young kids today that come into an organization, you're like, they could be incredible in this organization. Nobody's taking care of them. And I'm really concerned because they themselves have a view outside the organization that they could actually be the CEO of their own organization, and they're told they can start a business on a credit card, and they're told that their side hustle should be their front hustle. I mean, bloody hell. They're missing all of that great academic institutional knowledge that comes with these organizations. They can give them far more boundaries and even more interesting things to think about. So while there are boundaries and there's optimism, they're missing all of that and they rush out and try and do these things on the side. And I don't know whether it has longevity and I'm concerned about that because, you know, your working life is long. You spend upwards of 80,000 hours of your waking life at work, waking life. That's an enormous responsibility to take on. And when you're young and you're not being nurtured that way, you're gonna rotate out. And they rotate out for the wrong reasons. Typically, they're rushing because it's an uptick in salary. It's not an uptick in career. And that's a real concern for me. So not that that had anything to do with Dubai, mate. It's just the brain fart from when I landed, which is, you know, when I'm surrounded by these young kids, we really have to think about how we're going to re-engineer them differently because we are teaching kids in the academic way at school for jobs that don't exist. And that also concerns me. But anyhow, hell of an introduction and hello.
0: Well, that was a hell of an introduction. And I wanna come back to some of those topics and um, your insights on the way forward across the board right. um, are always compelling. So we're gonna come back to that, but let's stay where we started a little bit. Uh, we visited a few times out in Bellport yeah. during the pandemic. And I think both of us were sort of trying to cheer each other up. And you, yeah. know, you were trying to paint the way forward for me and yeah, I was trying yeah. to help paint the way forward for you. Mm. And while we're both by nature optimists, I think we were both pretty worried at various points about what the future might look like. Incredibly. Talk about that emotional journey for you of going from seeing pretty much no one to all of a sudden you're back at, you know, O'Hare or Kennedy and flying to Dubai and getting back on stage in front of a full audience. That's a big emotional journey.
1: Yeah, that's a great question and incredibly intimate. Because the pandemic was really challenging, particularly when you're a people person as you are, and as I am on stage i 'm not necessarily like that off stage because i'm i 'm pretty much an introvert. extrovertness is kind of a gift that I have that is part of the persona. but for somebody to call me and say, "I want to pop out and see you out in the middle of nowhere, and you know let's let's talk about your intimate life," was very important to me, so thank you, but also incredibly challenging so at that time, I felt very sort of fuzzy even more so than ever before because, I, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen and I'd just recently left Verizon, really. And the idea there was not to travel with the velocity idea but do less and do more with what I do. And that was really kind of the, the goal. I didn't expect that to zero out, which gave me a little bit too much more of what I needed to do. <laughs> but the upside is I have a young daughter and it was incredible to spend that time with her. And also spend that much time with my babe. I, you know, I really adore and love family life. And to actually understand what that meant, as opposed to somebody bumps in every weekend to say what's up and then bops out again, it was incredibly powerful for me. But career-wise, it was very fuzzy. And I didn't know what was going to go. And as you said, you know, you said to me, you know, you need to really focus and you need to get content and you need to do this. And I just felt like, Matt, I don't want to. Because I want to feel this. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to feel this and not try and pretend it's all happy hands and pretend to be the, the ultimate motivator and inspirer, which is what I do as an educator in the industry. Uh, I'd like to sit and listen and be a student because I came off stage to be a student for a while. I wanted to know what that meant. And so it took, it's taken me a while, actually, to reorientate, to understand what it's like to help people um, but you were one of the f- few people that reached out and helped me first. With, and I thank you for that. And I will always. But it was incredibly powerful. But to be back on stage and to have opportunities to connect with people has been enlightening. Two things it's done. It has elevated my capacity for empathy. Meaning I now understand needs of what, people, what people's needs are. And what I mean by that is and not because it's an oracle sense but simply because i understand that if i felt this others are feeling this and if others are feeling this there is a way forward that they can actually capitalize upon it now i think about that brand first but if i forget the brand i'm thinking about it people first and so what are the things that that they can do to help them get out of this this dilemma which is really what it is which is, if you turn around it becomes an opportunity now what does it feel like it, as i said it I, it's enlightening and and not because i felt like i needed a feedback but boy the feedback's been great because people are just really more intrigued but there's also there's this sort of extra openness so let me just paraphrase that by saying that i'll tell you a story i was in new york for a meeting with a client recently in the biotech space i was in a random part of the city you know up uptown near the javits building uh and no near near henry henry kravitz building up there Mm -hmm. the avon building i think i was somewhere near there very fancy and out of the blue i hear this hey shingy and i turn around and it's a mate who i've only known over zoom because we're all part of this kind of get together of of sort of apparently mavens in the industry and get together all the time to talk and i'm like mark what the hell are you doing here he's like mate i'm here for a meeting uh I'm like, I have a meeting too. And he goes, What are you doing this afternoon? I said, Guess what? I'm free. Which honestly, Matt, if somebody two years ago bumped into you, you'd blow him off. I probably would have blown them off and said, Hey, I'm way too busy for you. We must catch up. Let's catch up sometime. And I thought, No way. I've come in specifically for one meeting. I haven't come in to overscript myself. I've come in for happenstance. And happenstance is exactly that kind of positioning today. There's this new euphoria, which is don't over busy yourself give yourself time and space. And with that time and space can come, you know, enriching opportunities. So anyway, we went, we bopped down to Bolt and had lunch and it was really wonderful because we had this long, healthy discussion around what, what he's getting into and what I'm getting into. It was very cathartic and it happened. And not to sort of, to make this about you and Advertising Week, but at all, I felt that too, you know, Advertising Week New York was whatever, two weeks ago or something. And you felt that. You know, those conversations you had on the sidebar were actually proper conversations as opposed to looking over somebody's shoulder to see if I could see if there's a distraction behind it. And it was very cathartic. And I kind of like that. Concurrently, I'd also been talking about for a couple of years this whole idea of, uh, you know, niche is a new mass. And the pandemic, I think, has shown that as you walk into this hybrid world is it, there could be a bunch of people online checking out experiences which is great but the people who turn up and sit up front are there because they really want that intimate relationship and that nicheness to me felt really kind of it felt really enlightening and and I've, I've been speaking about that for a long time niches is a new mass and I meet that which is this this one to one communication on mass is really hard to do but you want to feel it and so these mass communication channels of which we participate in uh, there has to be some sort of intimacy that happens around it, I think, but but we'll see. But that's that's my learn. And, and coming off stage or coming back on stage, two things I just said that I learned from that is a heightened, elevated state of empathy. So now I can come alongside people and really help them along, which I think is important. But I also do it clearly from the guides of what brands are doing that I think are really great and what brands are doing that aren't great. and And hoping people can be inspired to do better than they could if they didn't have those tools previously.
0: So one of the things that I love about you when you're on stage is you are emotional and you evoke emotion and the audience has almost a visceral response to you. It's unique. There are many people who uh, want to keynote. Most of them, we save them from themselves and (laughs) turn it into a fireside chat. But you're one of very few who can do it and pull it off. For you, there must be a real duality of emotion being back on stage and, you know, with sort of that lens, that empathy lens and what you just touched on, open a little bit more. I guess that aperture is a little bit different now. Were you always a good speaker? I know you're one of 10 kids. Yeah. Was it a situation when you were young where you had to be to get your voice heard? know give us a little bit of the origin story because that's not a a lot of people know that
1: that's a great question so yeah you know obviously i'm from australia well i hope it's still obvious
0: (laughs) (laughs) it is
1: (laughs) yeah not new zealand not south african not british however uh, yeah i'm one of ten kids i'm number eight in the food chain grew up in a country new south wales town and pretty you know very much a working-class family two-bedroom house 12 people pretty rough Uh, one thing i did have was this incredible upbringing inside a restaurant though so i'm really good at tossing a wok and still today i'm probably the worst chef of the 10 of us but you know uh, one of my younger brothers is he was the head chef of the second best restaurant in australia in fact so you know we have some real talent and that was thankful for my dad Uh, he was able to teach us cooking really well he wasn't able to, to, to teach us how to speak because his broken chinese was quite hard to follow so anyhow Just to give you that paraphrase, I had a very bad car accident when I was 11. I got hit by a car and got dragged for two blocks. And I spent months and months in hospital and I lost the bottom of my face and I got airlifted to a different town that I'm not from. And I think at that point in time, my parents just said, hey, this kid wasn't really going to be with us, so let him be what he needs to be. So there's two choices you have when you have freedom as a kid, in my humble opinion, as a data point of one. You either take that and you become... You either take that into kind of either party central or you take that into work central, I think. You either channel it into one energies or the other. And bizarrely, as, as, as crazy as I look, I went the other way. I went into the work, the work channel, as well as having fun, don't get me wrong. But the party scene missed me. So I got very focused very early on uh, filling the gap of things I didn't have. So while I was at work, I'd finished my job at being a chef at the restaurant. Then I was a radio DJ, after school, and I did a radio show on, you know, Friday afternoons, and it became a very popular radio show. But then I'd always I'd be a radio DJ, or sorry, I'd be a disc jockey at a nightclub after being a chef. And then on Saturday mornings, I used to sell Levi's jeans, and you know, I was I was very capable, at least, of doing some few things. And that communication, though, was very intimate and quiet. And so I, I led a pretty basic. Upbringing, I feel like anyway, although quite flamboyant because I studied design and fashion and things that I really cared about, and I was able to live those. So as much as I I looked crazy because my sister's a hairdresser by the way, so she had ten experimentation monkeys she could try these new styles at, and I was definitely at the front of the queue, which, which is what I've kept lifelong. So I've been wearing crazy hair since I was about eight years old, which now feels like a thousand years ago. So what's nuts though, is that kind of my my capability for communicating didn't come till later on so i was a sort of very quiet designer and somebody who helped invent some internet technologies in the 90s and we moved it to the us and although i was part of the senior leadership team and helped that company get founded you know i was always in the background doing ux ui design 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 always at the heart of its design design and then i had the good fortune of of joining ariel Eckstein, who was the first person we'd employed in New York City, so I was originally his boss, and I became uh, he became my boss when I joined AOL in Europe, and he you know he wanted me to help launch these new territories that he had, which was great as they're in the capacity of marketing. I could, in fact, I had about five jobs, and I think I took most of them, regardless of who was in them, because I just have this capability of being much broader than the spec itself. But I met Tim Armstrong in that in his new joint as he started AOL he started at aol he didn't start AOL. my god um but he started at aol as their global ceo and i didn't know who he was and he came through and i listening to her once and everybody was at this dinner is saying hey you know we think it's a great idea tim what you're doing seems like it's going to walk on water and i was the only person in the room who said mm, i don't think it's that such a great idea i think you need to recede the waters over here and you need to get it right in the us and come back and have another crack at it differently
0: okay now wait a minute because you're you're jumping ahead and we're going to talk about tim i want to talk about aol but let's just dial back for another moment so you're give or take 17 yeah you grow up north of sydney yeah you go to sydney yes i did dive into the graphic design (laughs) world yeah ultimately somewhere in the late 90s you get yourself to new york yeah What brought you to New York initially? Great. And was that your first real experience with international travel? Because you were a very young guy at that time.
1: Yeah, no, it wasn't my first international travel. So prior to that, I'm half Chinese, so I wanted to reclaim my my Asian roots. And I went to Hong Kong to to see if that was going to work. And they don't like you if you look Chinese and you can't speak the the language. So it didn't last very long. But I had joined a software company in my design career as their in-house creative consultant was my title. And I was employed to, to do lots of branding. It was actually a fantastic job for a kid. I was 22, 23, 24 in that role. And so I'd been there a little while. But they had like five or six different companies. And I was I was the head of brand for all of them. And these are, you know, software companies that were old, old school SaaS models, et cetera, et cetera, but quite dynamic. But so I'd left my advertising roots and I'd gone into brand consultancy, which was pretty amazing to be able to do that. And then I joined a multimedia company as their head of design because I wanted to get back into multimedia. This is really before the internet. And I sat back one day and realized this multimedia company, it takes a lot to put all these bums on seats. There's got to be more efficiencies in the software. And of course Adobe were around and Dreamweaver and all these front page, all these abilities to sort of start building the internet stuff. And a couple of guys and I decided to sit back and design some software that rapidly built out websites. And... It was hard. It took a lot of money to form that company because the software was hard to write. And it was a big idea that, you know, that didn't stand the test of time when we moved it to the US. But the idea was to come to the US because it was such a big idea and launch this this company at the time called Hotspace and we renamed it to Click Things because you click on things to change them. And you could rapidly build out websites back in the day. Uh, and the idea though, and here's the twist, was that that website would be brought to you by a business that you had a relationship with like a MasterCard or American Express or somebody that actually wanted to have that relationship, you know, with Matt Inc. And they'd provide it to you via uh, intranet. And that was kind of the business idea until the bottom fell out of the market. And we were one of the companies that went with it. We slipped out of the back door. Uh, And and so we went from hero to zero overnight, but that's what brought me here. So you made a
0: comment, you said sort of before the internet, Mm. Let's talk about what that landscape looked like then. And I'm going to guess that many of the big players uh, who were the dominant early brands over the next subsequent years, most of them probably aren't here today.
1: No, they aren't here. And in Australia, we had limited internet access. It was still a dial-up by modem. You'd fire up stuff on the CD-ROM. And CD-ROMs were important to us as a multimedia company because it was a distribution model that was how we would distribute sales kits and ideas. Remember the back in the day, you'd open up your CD drawer, you slop that in, you put it in, and boom, suddenly you'd fire up this multimedia experience. Because I have this funny experience, Matt, where I remember having a bunch of young designers, when, and I was young myself, you know, here in New York, and they would say to me, Ah, Shingy, you got to check this thing out. It's Flash, and we can build this incredible piece of multimedia at like 120 pixels by 120 pixels. Look at this thing. It's moving it at probably 18 frames a second it's fantastic and i'd grab the tv remote and i'd turn it on and say yeah it is fantastic but look at that screen i mean look at that television still moves at a velocity that this internet has a long way to go so it was just fascinating to think about what the multimedia days were what we called multimedia which was basically distributing ideas through cd-rom executions which became the you know the, the powerhouse for where the internet sort of grapples with it today and it was all about connectivity all of those things could have been accelerated much faster if we had the connectivity. But, you know, it turned out that 56K modems really weren't keeping up with the ideas that we had back in the day. Nor were Dreamweaver, nor were Flash, nor were any of those things. Because the multimeter of the day was still cable TV. Right. And some of those big agencies and brands back in the day, like even Pets.com, I think, was one of them. And, you know, we talk about all these delivery systems. I mean, Urban something. Fetch was one of them. Urban something. All of these delivery systems we think about today. These guys, I mean, those models are twenty-five years old. I mean, I remember. In one of our investors was had invested in Gov. Do, GovWorks stock. You know, GovWorks was or Gov.com, maybe what it was at the time. Or GovWorks was the company. The idea that you get a parking fine in Texas, but you, you can't pay it in New York. Gov. These models were just ripe for disrupting that category, where today we just take it for granted. But at that point in time, these were companies in, you that know, had millions and millions and millions of dollars of investment to isolate one tiny idea. Where everybody today, these big ideas, they kind of feel like they're more like 360 degrees, not one degree. And so, yeah, all these companies had great ideas and they took on an enormous amount of investment. And very few of them succeeded. I mean, I remember uh, I remember some of the creative agencies, science was one of them. They were massive. And... Uh, Man, not around. Right. They didn't even get acquired. They just sort of quietly had to shut up shop because the thing was just so pear-shaped. Well, framing, against something else that you talked about
0: uh, and speak about frequently now, the underlying technology back then did not support or allow that sort of niche strategy
1: to actually work. No, it just didn't. So the ideas aren't any different. They're just reframed. So the technology today, we're in, a, we're in a great situation and a very fortunate situation where technology has now got to a point where the things that you think about and dream about can actually be realized. And I mean that from the fifth dimension. I don't mean that just from the fact we have a smartphone with a resolution that doesn't look like crap anymore. Uh, or that you don't need a plug-in to have multimedia on your phone. I mean, we just have this ethereal space that people can dream in. Back then, it was a limit of the technology, so everything was being throttled. And so these big ideas, uh, they just took longer (laughs) and more money to actually realise. And the reality is that today we're, we're in a place that's unleashed. So if you feel like you can't get a handle on things, it's because you shouldn't be able to get a handle on things because the breadth and depth is enormously wide not just in the world that we're in, which is how do you connect with people and brands and brands to people, but in what are the solutions that can happen out there to make this world more ubiquitous in the way that we feel connected, but make sure at the same time we don't feel disconnected, which is my bigger concern. But connectivity, connection, connectivity, connection, connectivity, connection is not limited. And I think that's a very exciting place to be and also an incredibly fearful place. But back then... To think about building a piece of software that rapidly built out websites and allows you to have a multi-dimension to that website. And what I mean by that is it's Halloween, so I want my site to be orange, and the next day I want it to go back to being black. Awesome. You can't even do that today. These are the technologies that we were thinking about back in the day, and they still stand the test of time. It's just that technology got in the way. And, but the, the fact that it took so much effort in terms of energy, of development, of investment to do that, it rocks my world today. Yeah.
0: It's a whole different ballgame. So, all right, we're going to get to today and tomorrow, but let's stay on uh, your journey yeah, a little sure. bit longer. So you have it time in New York, and then you get to London. What yeah. brought
1: you to London? So what brought me to London was I uh, – well, actually, the first time – I've been in London a couple of times. And, you know, it's interesting because – actually, let me just back up. When we first moved in to the U.S., it was going to be to San Francisco. You know, it was going to be to the, you know, obviously the whole idea of the Silicon Valley. But, you know, between us, <laughs> it just didn't feel like my bag, dude. I turned up and it felt very buttoned up. And it felt like any good ideas couldn't be realized at that time. And it was just purely my arrogance, I guess, or my naivety, not arrogance, because I didn't deserve to have any then. I just felt like people disregarded your idea. They're like, yeah, 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 we do it better here. We can do that. And it didn't matter whether I met with Adobe or met with investors, it just felt like, oh God, everybody is a know-it-all here, God bless them. And somebody said, you should go to New York and check that out. And as soon as we landed, we felt like we'd, we've arrived. It was amazing. Uh, and so fell in love with it. It was, it was an incredible opportunity. Uh, but during that time, I, you know, I also uh, realized that the multimedia super corridor could actually be anywhere to mindset and it doesn't have to be a time and a place it can actually be a spatial awareness and I felt that for London I felt that I feel that for New York City I feel that for New York City I feel that for Mexico I feel that for Tel Aviv I feel that for Tokyo I feel that in made I feel that in Detroit I feel that in Austin I feel that in Alabama I feel it anywhere now well back then it felt like you had to be in one or two of these big cities so That's where I think this whole new time and place is fascinating. But backing up, San Francisco is where I was first going to move. It didn't work out. We ended up in New York, which was incredible. When I ran out of money, I ended up going to Denver, though, because I am the founder of this technology, one of them. And I ended up going to Denver because one of our investors wanted us to rejig the business, which was very excited about. But why I moved out there? Well, when I moved out there, I think the real purpose for me moving out there was to fall in love, and I fell in love with uh, my honey now. And I remember... She said to me, you know, she's incredibly, incredibly bright and she has this, you know, fascination with art and she has degrees in other things as well. And she said to me, I would really want to pursue art full time. And I said, Ha, okay, well, why don't you apply to the best art school in the world and if you get in, we'll move anywhere, which happened to be in London at Goldsmith. And she got in to their master's program. So we're like, well, that's it, man. We just freshly married. We pack up our life and we moved to London. And the first time I moved there, I was telecommuting back and forth from Denver, which wasn't really good for me. It wasn't good for my, my psyche, really. And so came back to the US, moved back to, uh, to London because she got accepted in that same program and a doctorate this time. But I wanted something different. So I was speaking to an old friend of mine, Ariel, and that's that bridge because he used to work for me And then ultimately, you know, that's way back in the day, and our lives had completely changed. And he'd gone on to be an incredibly successful executive at AOL. And he said, Shingy, I do need some help. And that's how I got to London. Amazing.
0: So you referenced Tim, and uh, part of your job for AOL early on was rolling it out in other markets. That's right, 13 countries, yeah. It's hard to imagine, but when you joined, I think AOL was only, what, U.S., Germany? UK, only a handful of countries yeah, uk wasn't
1: germany france and the us primarily and you know there was this new geos that are called new geographies and i came on board to roll out like 11 countries at that time and in this new little division of aol called new geos and it really was sitting out there by itself and it was headed up by ariel who was a, a dear friend and that's why when he said, what what do you, what would you like to do for us? I looked at all the sort of jobs they had and I said, I can do all of these, dude. Um, and he said, but how about we just, let's stay with marketing for now. And I'm like, awesome. And that's where, it was early on in that rollout, by the way. We'd done all the rollout because that was pretty easy to do for me. And the technology was easy to roll out because it was the AOL portal at that point in time, really. Which I thought was really quite funny as well at the time because it was, I didn't grow up with AOL, And so we rolled out these new territories and it was You know, it's on its march. It was good. I don't know what the strategy was at the time, really. To be honest, I was pretty disconnected to the U.S. Um, But, you know, suddenly Tim Armstrong joins in that early path of my career at AOL. And I was a contractor. I wasn't full time. And I was at this dinner, as I said, and, you know, um, people were saying, yeah, this is going to be an incredible strategy. And I said, I just don't know if that's quite the right.
0: Now now you went, let's go a little further here, because what you really did, as I understand it, is Tim is new. Everyone in the room is, you know, cheerleading. Yeah. And you go the other way and say, by the way, the job that I've been tasked with, rolling us out in all these new markets may not be the best strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of balls to say that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was. But that's okay because it's the right thing. So I'm I'm confident about that. But also, you know, the good thing about it was, yeah, Tim realized, firstly, I'm a bit of a weird-looking dude in the room anyway. And as I said, I was a contractor at that time. And he said, I'm bringing on this lady who used to work for Google for me. And she came through, I think, originally from an acquisition. And her name's Kate Burns. And Kate became my boss in Europe. And that's when things really accelerated for me, Matt, because you know, she's been one of my favorite people on planet Earth, period, but also to work with. So she's an incredibly successful, vivacious, flamboyant executive who I was in awe of. And she said to me, Shingy, there's something about your talent that we really need to capitalize upon here. Will you be my head of media and marketing? So I already had the marketing piece, but I I have a really strong knack for, for the media. Like what should we be building for the audience that should be captivated? And it should be somebody's job to do that. And... At that time, we were sort of receding the waters in some of those markets that we'd opened up. And we really doubled down in the UK. France and Germany were starting to recede as well. And we had the capacity and capability then to launch new sites, you know, understand what we really needed to build as a media. And I didn't know media from a how to run an editorial team very well, but I knew the strategies. And so one of the things I did, we were still part of Time Warner at that point. I went into IPC Media, which owns Wallpaper and some other great titles, And I remember going to Eve Webster, who was there at the time, and said, Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to have to try and um, work with you to... Can I isolate some talent? And anyway, I stole one of her her, her great people. And, you know, I still feel terrible about it today, but not really. Because this person didn't know digital, so I could teach her as much as possible about digital. And I didn't know a lot about editorial, and she taught me a lot about editorial. So it was a really good symbiosis relationship. I've always sort of learned in my career, Matt, to try and learn from others and not think that I know it all because honestly I'd rather be the king maker than the king in some respects and that's been hard to do because I'm I'm a known speaker and quite flamboyant at it so there's a talent there that needs to be capitalized upon which we'll get to because you've asked me that question about th- 3 hours ago apparently but you know what I wanted to underscore here is that understanding what your gap is and filling that gap with great talent was something that I learned from Tim and I learned it from Ariel and I learned it from Kate and I've kept that in my, you know, in the, in the front of the way that I think about moving forward, which is how do you actually fill, it, fill knowledge? Because you can't have all the answers. I mean, I don't want to live with that sort of anxiety. But Kate was a phenomenal boss for me that allowed me to be unleashed. And so one of my parts of that, meaning she didn't just keep me in the territory of the UK. She knew that I had very strong opinions about what well, this brand should be globally. And I'd had a great relationship with Tim, understanding that my creativity was being capped. And so as they were thinking and reforming the AOL brand, I helped them understand what agency they should pick. Um, I was on the the committee to come up with its new brand values and then 100 days that he was there. In fact, I was at a town hall in Washington, D.C. Sorry, in Dallas, not D.C., um, where the head office was for AOL. And I got to, at the end of that 100 days, I got to launch a new mission for AOL. So I'd flown from the U.K. over to present this thing. It was just this a massive amount of sort of global sense and trust that was brought in, that atmosphere was brought into AWA really, really, really early. And I was incredibly proud to be part of that and represent that, that diversity of thinking and culture that they had, as opposed to being this very buttoned up U.S. company at the time. and Tim spearheaded that and Kate was somebody who helped orchestrate it. So, so I was very excited by that.
0: So talk a little about the evolution of the relationship with Tim. And I think it was actually him who asked you to write the mission statement, for the new AOL, which you, as you referenced it, you delivered, I think it was a huge audience, almost an arena full of people.
1: It was an arena How full of How did
0: that yeah. that relationship with Tim evolve and really flower and became, a you know, a, almost a 15-year run, an incredible run you guys had together?
1: Yeah, so, you know, with Tim it was, and I didn't, you know, I didn't write the mission statement, but I helped contribute it with this. So Tim's great at creating collaborative environments where there's not really just one voice there's multiple and so that we'd outsourced it to all these different voices and we'd narrow it down and narrow it down and narrow it down so it ended up being a few of us in the room I can't remember maybe five or something but we're all from different walks of life there's a, a good friend who ran black voices for AOL there was me who was kind of the international flavour we might have had one person from France at the time and a couple more from the US and we just sat down and cracked it out to be a very simple mission statement and they needed somebody to deliver it, and I just I was fortunate enough to deliver it. But that was that was Tim's incredible ability to democratize leadership, because he was at that at that point and being at the head of it, he didn't need to make the decision. The the decision was being made by the audience, and the audience were the employees. And I think Matt, at that point in time, there was probably still ten thousand people or something. It was massive, and there was probably a thousand people in the arena. I mean, it was massive. For me, that audience was big for me at the time to get up there and present. But one thing I did know is that that brand at that time wasn't going to be the new AOL. So you know, Tim knew that he, he had an international talent that he could tap, which was me, to help uh, bless and steer kind of where the creativity of that brand was going to go. And like every big business, when one division performs poorly, everyone suffers. And I suffered from my marketing budget not being probably as exciting as the brand rollout was going to be. But I had to keep that brand alive. So my, I made it a job of mine and Kate blessed it was to go into the market and talk about AOL differently so, and you know, give it context to the media that I have and give it context to the sites I was responsible for and the proposition that I was responsible for. But I also needed to give the industry some context. And so the only way to do that was to go out B2B, not B2C because I didn't have the consumer budget. I mean, AOL went from one of the largest consumer budgets on planet Earth to zero. and Nobody's heard of it from years. No wonder, you know, its brand relevance and sentiment fell off the planet Earth. So instead of trying to captivate the B2C audience with a budget I didn't have, I went and captivated the media audience, who ultimately would fund the sites that we have and become great partners. And the way I did that, Matt, was to talk about the industry. I just happened to carry a card that said AOL with a title that at the time I think was the head of media and marketing or something. And it was in that time of, you know, first stepping on a stage as somebody who sat on a panel who, and it's very simple. You can either go, yes, 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 nod, 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 and agree with everybody and go down the line. Or you can sit there and sort of tilt your head and say, perhaps maybe this should be a different way to think about it. And people started to sit up straight and think, who the hell is this lunatic? And that's that's kind of where that came from. That's where the prophet came from. And that title, by the way, there was this time when I was sitting with Kate and Tim and they're like, you know, I think you've outgrown the UK, why don't you move back to the US and help us do exactly what you're doing, but let's do it from New York and be the evangelist. I said, I'd love that idea, but I hate that title because Google has them and Amazon, uh, Google has them, Microsoft, I think, had them, maybe Yahoo. So we can't do that, man. I don't want to be an evangelist of many. Let me think up a new title. That's where the profit came from. Ha-ha-tee-hee. Fantastic.
0: Fantastic. And talk about when you were telling that story, the landscape was completely different. Yeah. Connectivity was a much lower wattage. And almost none of the topics that we're talking about today even existed then. Talk about what it was you were out there talking about at that time and looking back on it now does it amaze you how fast we've come and how quickly
1: uh, yes and no how fast no how quick the industry had to adapt yes and it all comes down to consumer behavior right so I fundamentally and you've heard me speak many times but can, you know, technology has changed our behavior but it hasn't changed our need and we're hungry for our needs to be met. And, you know, back in the day, though, you know, if, if I go way back to like 2011, I think I was, in, I was doing an interview because, I, at, you know, at that point in time, people probably thought I was a lunatic because I was talking about connecting with people in ways that are super authentic. And we do that from a lens of content, but the content is narrow cast. That was when I was talking about niche, niche content, which is you don't have to come to our portal to read everything. Who does that? Nobody does you want to come in and know about cars let's go super deep in cars and not just because i'm an editor of cars but because we've got these fans who are actually the people who really care about the commentary which by the way you know 10 years later is huffington post but we were trying to do it in what we were doing at that point and aol had communities and conversations and chats and chat rooms all these things but doing it on a public space in a narrow, in a narrow vertical that's genius so we were really talking about getting away from the aol brand powered powered by AOL, brought to you by AOL. But it was really this masthead out there and the auto blogs of this world or, you know, we had uh, InStyle, no, not InStyle, that's not us. We had uh, a, a, a woman's title. I'm blanking on it right now, so apologies. But we were, we had this capability of having all of these verticals that were narrow and all of this content that was deep and was people's passion and it all rolls up to be the persona of who this person is that's by the way that's called social media <laughs> yeah. and at that point in time facebook was one of many you, in fact i remember a piece of software man i can't remember the bloody name of it you could build a facebook so i had a shingy social media at one point in time it looked exactly like facebook does today and i invite people to come and join it and it was this whole idea of distributed social networks then Bebo, which ultimately AOL ended up buying, was one of those categories. And, you know, MySpace couldn't rejig itself in time. You know, Friendster, you know, there was all of these things happening in the, in the, in the sphere of social. We were just doing it from, an, from a media perspective. We were already doing it. We already had a social network of people because we had a community that cared about those passions. But before us, there were, you know, there were geocities that Yahoo ended up buying back in the sort of 90s. these ideas aren't necessarily new they're just new because the context has changed and the needs of people are the same but the way they do it the behavior is different and people capitalized upon that so i I know i'm not surprised by it but I i am surprised by how quickly people have had to adapt to it i remember at one point saying i don't i don't fundamentally can't believe that amazing brands like incredible fashion brands that you have you know you walk down the street, you see them in the window. Are ever going to have a brand in their window that isn't theirs? And you walk down there today, and you see in the window there's, you know, there's a logo for everything from TikTok all the way through to Facebook and everything in the gamut. And I wasn't expecting that. So to outsource their brand to third parties happened real quick. It's because the audiences happen to be there real quick, and they can't build their own audiences because that's not their capability. Their capability are other things. So anyway, no, I wasn't surprised. But the things that were, you know, back then I even talked about, uh, cap- you know, as I said, I was doing this interview. Let me get back to that topic. And the smartphone, I think phone, uh, the iPhone 1 or 2 had been out at that point. And I remember the quote that sort of blew up around the comms team was that I said that apps were rubbish. And I was absolutely right by what I meant by that. Now, if you, the dot, dot, dot after that, though, the reason I said apps were rubbish was because the... Desktop of the phone, as such, because we were used to desktop software, hadn't changed much. You're swiping through a, uh, an, uh, an experience that felt like a desktop of your machine, happened to be shrunk down on your phone, and these apps were hungry and kind of rubbish. They were limiting in the ability you can do, and they weren't interoperable. So that was back in like 2011. I still stand behind that, dude. I mean, it's still relevant today. It's still rubbish. We have very few interoperable apps and the desktop of phones are kind of rubbish so what we've now got round icons you know they used to be square shoulders and now they're rounded and it used to be skewmorphism, which means it looks realer than real and now it's blended colors or flat design i'm like oh my god it hasn't changed the only company who tried to radicalize that was microsoft i thought their gui was fantastic the only problem was crap phones because they didn't build one. And when they did build one, it was ridiculous. The round phone by Microsoft was dumb, but ambitious. So i give them my hat, you know, take my hat off to them. But boy, did they have an interesting idea around the GUI. But they'd actually tried to radicalize the GUI. It didn't work for them because at that point in time, we'd homogenised the smartphone. And we still have it today. It's no different. It's just flatter. It's not skewer than it was before. It's just weirder.
0: So you have the benefit of time and perspective. Right. There are many players, and we touched on this earlier, who were around back when you started who are gone now. Right. Some have disappeared and reappeared. We helped relaunch the Yahoo brand with their new owners a couple weeks ago at Advertising Week. The AOL brand is effectively gone now. Yeah. Are there common attributes to those who succeeded in achieving longevity and those that didn't. I ran into um, Tim and Chris, who for a brief, brief period, MySpace came back about 10, 11 years ago. I remember we did a big concert with them. I think it was Vanderhoek, the two brothers who bought it. Oh, yeah. And we did a big concert with them. We did a great event at Radio City with Justin Timberlake. Yeah, yeah. When they were trying to relaunch it. Right. Very intimate, great event and a beautiful space there, the Roxy Suite. And it didn't last. Right. And there are many others, some of whom you referenced. What enabled those that have succeeded over the long term to do that? And what do you think the ones that didn't make it missed along their journey?
1: Yeah. What a bloody great question, dude. And I really wish we had a big fat glass of red wine to really talk about this late night as opposed to whatever the hell it is. 11 we, o'clock we can in the do morning. a
0: part two. We can do a, an after dark version of this But here's what I think
1: is really... Here's why your, your your question is so pointed and so brilliant. And so I don't think I can give you a brilliant answer, but I'm going to give it in two ways. One is brand equity isn't what everybody thinks it is. So to go hero to zero overnight can happen. Why? We're in a world where you do not need to be a top 10 marketer spend anymore to be a top 10 brand in the world. Period. Full stop. So brand equity isn't what it used to be. I thought the MySpace reboot was absolutely gorgeous. The iconography change, the update, the GUI update, I thought from a design perspective, phenomenal. But nobody needed that shit anymore, dude. We'd moved on. And we've moved on to utility. What we needed was utility in music. We don't need more video. It's called YouTube. In fact, YouTube was created because of MySpace. MySpace's success, sorry, YouTube's success was MySpace. They didn't want to host videos. And so they'd lost their marbles and gone down a different path. And then, you know, people like Apple Music was already around. Spotify was clipping at their heels. People wanted a different type of intimacy. That intimacy wasn't visual. That intimacy was audio. They wanted sound in their headphones, which was way better than the tiny little screen that you're trying to jam those videos into because it still wasn't sexy and it still wasn't connected very well and you're sucking my data plan. So it was a wrong type of utility that was never, ever going to play in my mind. And somebody comes along and says, I'm going to fix a problem that needed to be solved. And Allah, along came the Spotify's of this world, which I think are doing an amazing job of it today. Who came on at the cusp of MySpace trying to reboot itself in the wrong direction because they thought they had a lot of brand equity. And then you, ha- you do not have budgets big enough to try and convince people that you are something that you are not or you need something that you don't. Period. Full stop. You know, the business of making people want stuff is over. You have to make stuff people want. You have to reframe it. So in the guys in my mind of Yahoo, their reboot from what Apollo are going to do, which they did with Shutterfly and others, when you've got a big audience that sit there and it's dormant, meaning yeah, they check their mail and they check out the homepage, etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, that's a massive engaged audience that doing one utility that you can flip into multiple utilities. So it may not necessarily have to be a big media brand or a big search brand but it could be in a massive utility brand and a rent roll brand that's radically different than anything they've mined in the past. So the configuration of that brand could potentially change from being something that is ad supported to be, I don't know, cash funded where people actually pay for utility per month there because the services they give you from the core of their brand is way more important than the banner ads that they're trying to sell you in an environment that feels like portal centric. So I think there's lots of velocity that can happen there because it's core to what that audience is needing. Needs, needs, needs is incredibly important because it's what you need and what you want could be very different. And some of these brands that are trying to reboot, if they don't solve a problem through the need that they have and the utility of which they do that in an interface that feels like it's simplified, I don't think it's gonna stand a chance of succeeding anyway. So,
0: arguably, you have spoken more publicly and know more privately about the contemporary business of creating, building, sustaining, growing brands than anyone who I know.
1: Mm.
0: Our industry has built great brands, but has also had an incredible proclivity to destroy great
1: brands
0: (laughs) I remember when Yahoo bought Broadcast.com from Mark Cuban within almost a year Mm. everything that they had bought for somewhere around 2 billion that's where all Cuban's money came from was gone I remember and I'll pick on Yahoo for no reason in particular because I I happen to love Yahoo but I remember when they bought Flickr great brand at that time the founders were there Flickr was really a player for a while ultimately killed it same with tumblr and there are many other examples across the board in our industry what is it about our business that has that you know real duality to create and build but also to absolutely wreck stuff that was pretty good it seemed
1: yeah that's a really good question and i think ultimately when an organization gets to a point where the core of what they're trying to do feels limited from its from its ultimate growth potential the only way to do that is you either buy or build most companies on planet earth that get to a particular size can't actually innovate at all and so they have no choice but to buy hand on heart truthfully and part of that's just the organizations aren't designed for that agility and they have no way to incubate talent And retaining talent of that capacity is incredibly difficult. And that's why most people buy or most brands buy coolness or innovation or whatever you want to call it. The challenge is it seems like such a great idea at the time because it feels like it's part of the ecosystem that the core brand hasn't understood what its ecosystem really should be and what that totality of the ecosystem looks like. Because what happens is you just bolt on a few of these things and it feels like it's starting to manifest itself and then it starts to get pear-shaped and you realise, oh my goodness, it's so far away from the core that no longer relates. So I thought the Yahoo acquisition of Flickr at the time was quite genius because, you know, you could pay whatever it was, $10 a month for Flickr Pro and you're able to, if you were really smart about that at the time, where are you going to have that content? And should that content be searched and unearthed across Yahoo Search first? And should there be a symbiosis relationship with me as a creator and them as somebody who has eyes on where that could go, Mm -hmm. could be a totally different business model. But if you're looking at the ecosystem, you also have people, you have to have an infrastructure and people in place to fulfill it and understand what that ultimate ecosystem looks like. And a lot of times you just don't have it. A lot of these companies lack vision. The core business itself had a great vision and that ubiquity is awesome. But there's also, there becomes this point, duality, where does that master brand deserve to take over that other brand and just bring its utility into play, and will people understand it? A lot of times, yes. Sometimes, absolutely not. Which is why it needs to be rebranded, a la Facebook, <laughs> and the whole idea of being meta. <laughs> I mean, it's got so far away from when it's, you know, it's isolated bullseye that they're going to have to change its name because it seems so radically different. Right. It's no different. And so, you know, you seem like we've, you know, brands are being absorbed and being killed. It's because it's lost its way within the ecosystem. There's no choice. And so somebody else needs it. Either be gets spun back out, becomes independent, or it gets rolled up as a piece of architecture. And suddenly you feel like this is a really rich experience. You forgot that it was used to be called Flickr. And Flickr itself doesn't have its independent dimension to be able to go do something radically different anymore because it's got a different owner. And those owners at that time are looking at something in its total and not something in its isolated passion point and that's where i kind of i think we've lost it a little bit which is again i'm back to niches and the new mass in my mind which is these businesses could be standalone monsters which is awesome but when they get absorbed inside an organization they lose their mojo typically and they're not accelerated they're actually crushed and you know it looked like instagram was headed that way for a while but boy haven't they done a great job of even circumventing the brand of facebook and becoming even better than them So Facebook can really learn from that organization, you know, and so is WhatsApp, you know, one of the sleeping giants. You think about that and think, well, that's pretty amazing Um, because, I don't know, they seem to be so big that they're smart enough to keep some of those so independent. They have no choice. It's great, great stuff.
0: So your run at AOL, Verizon Mm -hmm. comes to an end. Yes, sir. As all things do. And you write, and I want to read it because I think I want to get your words right, we inhabit a pivotal time at which much as at stake in how we practice media and marketing. That's a very deliberate and specific message. Are you worried about the enormity of the monster of technology that has been unleashed? You're referencing here in my mind Directly or peripherally all the data and privacy issues that we're facing. Yeah. And our industry is in the midst of really, you know, uh, turbo upheaval. Right. What did you mean
1: when you wrote that? That's a great question. And I love the fact you wrote it down. You didn't print that thing off, so you really do pay attention. What did I mean? I mean, it's really sort of a consciousness, which is... I had the good fortune of working in Europe and understanding what it meant to have cookie rules and flushing our our cookie caches every 30 days, et cetera, et cetera. I have the good fortune of understanding what it feels like to have anonymous data, right? And so what you're doing is you're dealing with a a greater audience. You're creating persona or, or lookalikes. But truthfully, we're getting much closer to this data and this data leakage, in my mind of identifying somebody far more acutely, but not necessarily inspiring them. I have a very simple principle, and I'll just base it on this, which is if you give back somebody an experience that's so much better than the data you're collecting on them, then you deserve to collect more data from them, period, full stop. But I don't feel like we've done that, and I don't feel like we're doing that. I feel like we're camouflaging all of this data in some respects to come up with what we think people want without actually asking them. And at the end of the day, behind that screen is a human, the ones you care about. Because if they're not human, we already know what happens. We've got phantoms out there. And we've got all of these phantom people that follow. And we have all these phantom farms that are creating all of this kind of... If anything can be hacked, it's being hacked. And I'm concerned about it. And so on the reverse of that, or the flip side of that is... I'm also just concerned we haven't been more ambitious with these digital experiences out there where we've just become this over-programmatized, if that's such a word, and if not, I've just made one up. Yay, add that to my whole quiver. Uh, it's, I prefer people over programmatic. And I think we've just gone too far one way. And I know the industry swings one way or the other. You know, We were all emotion at one point, and then we went all programmatic, and we will meet in the middle. And meeting in that middle should be now. And why should it be now? Because we've just spent almost two years having the time and energy to be thinking about how we can actually be really different in our behaviors. Because if we don't, we're going to fall back into bad habits. And this discussion that you and I are having will be exactly the same in 24 months, unless we change. Well, you just hit it and, and the
0: audience wouldn't know this, but we're doing this record in person. Right. And it's a very different conversation than over Zoom. Right. And that sweet spot, and we saw it together, at Advertising Week a few weeks ago that unites digital and experiential and the human connection, the people part. I think if there's one thing we've learned after this last two years, no matter what your politics are, it's that people want to be with other people. Right. And that has not
1: changed. And I think you could argue only more so now. Absolutely. I completely underscore that period, full stop. I mean, that's kind of the backbone of my business for sure. But also at the same time, not at the expense of technology so if technology can help it feel like that we're having intimacy and zoom i think has done a reasonable job of doing that but don't forget there are times when when you you know it's been pretty soulless when i've jumped on to do a a a big old presentation on zoom and nobody has a camera on yeah and it's pretty soulless you know i did a couple of i did a graduation speech where i'm like everybody's got to turn their cameras on please otherwise i don't proceed because i'm a guest and i want to see you but there are times when you don't want that technology. And the reason you don't want is that I don't want to see myself on it. And secondly, I don't want to see everybody else. I just want to listen to the conversation so I can thoughtfully respond to it. Because I don't need all, those, I don't need all my rods and cones sparking by wondering what's going on on Zoom. I want to listen to it, absorb it, feedback it, and give really good, valid contribution. And we're still trying to figure that out. So technology can be a helper or a hindrance. And that's just a very good example of day-to-day Zooming, for example. And that's the same for Google and Teams and all the rest of the bloody things we sit in front of. And they're not going away. We just need to learn how to use them better. The problem is we fall into a habit of saying this is the way it should be. It's not. There's a context for it. And if, you know, anything that I've ever spoken about, context matters. And even for Zoom calls, the context matters. And it could be, I don't want anybody to be on video because I want you all to absorb this. So close your eyes and listen. And feedback. This is what I want for the next period. And that's how I want you to actually result. I don't want you to worry about your environment. I don't want you to feel like you have to look at everyone else. I don't want you to be distracted because you've been distracted in the the last five meetings we're in. There's ways to think about this differently than us just using what we think the technology is for because everyone else tells you what we think the technology is for. We have to be careful we don't fall in these homogenized environments. We get numbed out to it. You know, In some respects, this is kind of a... uh, a weird statement because i don't know the answer to it i just think the whole idea of technology and the internet needs to be punked i feel it being punked a little bit in the old the world of nfts etc etc because all the digital art at the moment feels a bit like 8-bit it all looks a little bit like bad clip art from the 80s to me uh, or it looks like little tiny you know 200 by 250 sort of 8-bit animated bits and i feel like that's being punked so you know how else can we punk it you know i thought myspace punked the internet a while ago what, what are we going to do to punk that? Yet yeah, we feel very homogenized. And so I'm a bit concerned that we're just clustering and we're not actually creating because it's no longer about consuming content. And to me people do that, right? I want people to be creators and critics and curators. And, but not everybody has that. Not everybody has opinions. Everybody has, yeah, it's, a different, it's a different set that we need to think about. But that's definitely for drinks, I think. More, more, more down that rabbit hole another time.
0: So it took us an absurdly long time to get you on Great Minds. It will not take us as long to get you back. I hope not. As we wrap now, I can't have someone who has had the word profit in their title for so many long. I can't let you leave without asking you, what do you think we'll be talking about? We do Shingy 2.0 for Great Minds a year from now.
1: What do you think we'll be talking about? Well, in a year from now, it's not long enough for anything to really change seismically. Uh, and to say that, of course, nobody knew a pandemic was coming, it was going to smack everyone in the ass and sit down and have to pay attention. But I hope we're not talking about lessons we didn't learn. That's one thing. And I do hope we're talking about, isn't it incredible how ambitious people have got? How the idea of making stuff that people want has actually started to crystallize. Making experiences that people want to actually pass to their friends as humanly possible, for example, as opposed to the passivity of saying, if I have this frequency enough in front of people, maybe people will actually remember me. I have the ability to change. And so I'm hoping in a year's time, we're not going to be talking about connectivity. That's not going to matter. We're not going to be talking about the, the hottest social network. That doesn't matter, you know? And we're not going to be, because we're just not, by the way, you know, tiktok reminds me a little bit like vine by the way it sort of reminds me of of that and we know things can come up and down at a frequency we've never seen before so we don't i don't care about flat platforms so much what i care about is that have we helped people in their time that they connect with devices be a better human face to face in conversation with people who are in their vortex because two things that i do know two pieces of data that has been astounding to me His bedtime reading in the last 18 months has gone up almost 1,000%. Uh, People are actually more curious in their real world about things like cooking and reading and things that felt like old school today where we're like, quickly, 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 let's get something postmated here, you know, evidently. And, you know, let's make sure that we just skim across the surface of the internet and not go deep. There is a, a behavior that's changed but a need that hasn't, which is connect, connect, connect. And so in a year's time or so, can we talk about how people have better connections and become better conversationalists at dinner as opposed to people who are fubbing through life and disconnected and less connection to themselves and the people around them? Because at the end of the day, your network of friends online might be big, but your intimacy should be closer with those who are in front of you. So I'd like to see a little bit more human than a less of where we've been in the last sort of 18 months or so.
0: Great answer. Well, this is the ultimate manifestation of that old expression, it's always a better room with you in it. (laughs) And uh, I can't tell you what a joy it is to see you. Um, You're one who I have gotten to see uh, a bunch the last few years, one of you. Um, And uh, we'd love to have you back. And I can't let you leave without also thanking you for all you've done for Lance and I and our team. Early on, our very first foray into the virtual Mm -hmm. world, which we did out of asia you very graciously uh, were our host yeah and uh, colin and our team sent <laughs> a bunch of gear out to you yeah, in they were suffolk amazing. and um, you uh, how many separate pieces did you film for us
1: oh i don't know it felt like maybe 30 or something it was it was, it was a lot of work
0: it was a lot of content. And you were terrific. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to uh, uh, much more trouble with you in the future. <laughs> and as we ramp up and start traveling around the world again in 22, we actually have the only award we've ever created. As you know, Advertising <laughs> Week shied away from you know, trying to uh, create another one of these you know, money grab, pay to enter sure. awards. But we do have one very special award, um, the Shingy. Mm. which is bestowed upon someone who contributes the most, both in quality and quantity, <laughs> of appearances across the world. And it did come up a few weeks ago. Somebody came up to me and said, I, I think I should get the Shingy. Yeah. And it's a thing out there in the world. And Amen. of course, named after you, uh, Fernando Machado uh, is a past winner. Yeah. And uh, you have left an indelible image on all of us. Um, and we love you and thank you for doing this
1: oh it's my pleasure thank you